You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. There have been a couple times in my life when I knew without a shadow of a doubt that nothing would ever be the same. Something significant had happened uh, that would change and shift the way I approached every day of my life from there on out. Now, some of us can probably think of those kind of terrible moments, if you've had any of those, where you get the phone call or the doctor's appointment or whatever, and you find out, oh, nothing's the same and it's a bad thing. But hopefully, most of us can bring to mind a wonderfully disorienting moment in life where nothing is ever going to be the same in a good way. And at the end of it, you think, well, now what? Like, how am I supposed to, like, live now? For, for me, probably the most uh, obvious case of this was during the birth of our children, specifically with our firstborn. I remember the nurses taking him and, like, cleaning him up and all that stuff. And, and, I, and I was just, my wife had been, like, this rock star warrior person, and I just was, like, there and I, 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 like, had no idea what to do uh, because I pretty much hadn't done anything that whole time. And then uh, one of the nurses said, uh, do you want to come see your son, Dad? And I was like, who's she talking to? <laughs> for, for real. Like, I was that kind of odd. And then I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's me. And so, so I kind of just walked over on shaky legs and was like, hello. You know, it's nice to... <laughs> I, I don't know. Now, you would think, you would think after you read all these books and you go to the classes and you think about it, and you talk, that you would know what to do. I had no idea. In fact, when they sent us home, and I was talking to some other parents just last week about this, when they sent us home, I couldn't believe that they were letting us, us take a baby home, like without sending nurses or whatever to help us. And then I drove like three miles an hour all the way. It was just like all of that preparation meant nothing. Once I was actually in that moment, it was completely and utterly disorienting. I, I, I just didn't know what am I supposed to do now. Well, today, we are diving back in to what many people have called the greatest letter ever written, the letter to the Romans. I heard when, he, when Alex said, hey, we're back in Romans, I just heard the cheer go up. You guys are so pumped about this. You better be, because we're going to be here for a bit, and Romans 8 is amazing. It is amazing. So if you haven't opened already, open up to Romans chapter 8, if you would, page 944, and I'm going to try to uh, reset this a little bit, uh, just quickly. The Apostle Paul was in a port town near Corinth when he'd heard about the struggles of the Christians in Rome. Jewish converts had, had... Uh, probably been at Pentecost, and they had traveled back home to Rome, where they lived, and they had started these, these worship gatherings, maybe in synagogues or in homes, and it went well, and it began to grow, and, and like other people would come to their church, and like, like Gentiles, and that was awesome, and they were excited about it. But, but at some point, the emperor expelled all of the Jewish people from the city of Rome, forcing them to leave their homes and their church gatherings. Well, when these Jewish people were allowed to go back home after a little while, when they got back home and they went to their church or their churches, their gatherings, they're like, this doesn't look like what we left. We left something that, very, that felt very Jewish and kind of like we could understand it, and now all the leadership is Gentile. Like, like, how are we supposed to do church together? 
Well, the Apostle Paul, he'd heard about some of the tensions that they were facing, and he understood that in order for them to move forward as a church, they would have to like, come together on the same sort of rallying cry. They would have to have something that they all agreed on so that they could kind of move forward together. It's a, it's a little bit like a, like a sports team that has like a rallying cry or like a fight song or something, right? Like one of the greatest fight songs ever written. Uh, forward down the field, right? Lions, NFC Championship game today. Yeah, it's a horrible, horrible song, but, but it's our song, you know? It's like something we can, we can sort of wrap our heads around, our arms around. You know, a lot of teams have rallying cries like Go Blue or Roll Tide or Boiler Up or whatever. Those are cool, but, but some, some seem to be a bit more poignant. Perhaps one of the more inspiring ones is that of Marshall University. Marshall University. Uh, apparently, I haven't been to the games, but apparently they chant, We are Marshall. Like that. And you go, well, that's just a very simple, like, that doesn't seem very cool. It's just like, we are Marshall. And didn't Penn State do something like that? And yeah, Penn State actually did it before. But what makes Marshalls cool is their history. Because on November 14th, 1970, the school lost most of the football team, as well as coaches, athletic trainers, athletic director, a couple boosters, and flight crew, due to a terrible plane crash in West Virginia. And according to a legend in an article that I read, it was a couple years after the worst moment of their lives, something that altered the course of life for many, many people in that area and at that university. Uh, as they rebuilt their football team, a couple years later, some cheerleaders started to this chant, this, this We Are Marshall. Now, when you hear it in light of the tragedy, it sounds a little bit more impressive than, than just a cheer. It sounds like this statement of survival. Like there's this thing that binds us that's bigger than the game that's happening. We're part of something bigger. And so when we go to this game, we are going to recognize this about us. Well, in the letter to the Romans, Paul knew that a whole lot had gone on, and he wanted them to bind together. So he's like, I need, I need you to know that what's happening is bigger than the song choices and whether or not somebody elbowed you in the pew or you slipped a little bit in the parking lot. Or what. No, it's bigger than that. There's something that binds us together deeply, and that something is the gospel, the message of Jesus, that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve, and that he rose again to life so that we might live. And you hear all that, and you're like, this is awesome, cool. He spends seven chapters saying, oh, man, the gospel's so great, and it frees you, and you're justified, and all this big theological stuff. And you're like, cool. And then you're kind of going, but now what? Because chapter seven just said, I'm still going to struggle and have these battles. So like, how am I supposed to live this new gospel-y life? Paul, now what am I supposed to do? And instead of just telling them what, he kind of tells them who. Kind of tells them. Look, look at uh, Romans chapter 8, starting verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So to everybody who says, well, now what? How am I supposed to live this life of faith? Paul tells us what the life of Christ is all about. Specifically, it's not a what as much as it is a who, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. Up until this point, Paul has probably mentioned the Spirit like three or four times. In this chapter alone, 20 times or more, Paul is going to be talking about the Spirit. So today, we're going to work through this in three sections. We're going to talk about the Spirit, the Spirit's work, and the Spirit's people. So let's start with the Spirit. Before we can get into the specifics of what he is saying here, we have to ask ourselves, who is the Holy Spirit exactly? The Apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Life. And I think that's a very instructive title for who the Holy Spirit is. A couple years ago, we looked at this in a little bit of detail, but I want to mention it here again today. But as people worked to understand who God is throughout the Bible, they, they saw that there's like this Father, this Son, and this Holy Spirit. And, and they also saw that God wasn't presenting himself as three separate gods, but three persons and one God. And so people tried to look at this and they said, what, what is going on here? And brilliant men like Irenaeus and Tertullian and others, they helped clarify a doctrine that we now call the Trinity. And in the three and four hundred, scholars wrestled down and clarified this biblical doctrine. And they wrote this creed that Christians have learned and we have leaned on for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. This idea that God exists in three persons, but he's just one God. There's a classic diagram for this. Um, and this, this is kind of how it works. Uh, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And Father is not the Son and Spirit. So, so that each one of these persons is unique and distinct. And they were God, one God, three persons. A tri Unity. Now, this doctrine, uh, if you've been around church for a while, is probably not the easiest of the doctrines to wrap your mind around. In fact, it's one of those doctrines that when I was a, a, a Bible teacher, I taught high school Bible for a couple years, um, I, I tried to avoid this one. It's like a really big and important one, but I'm like, some kid's going to go, how does that work? And I'm going to go, I don't know. And then uh, uh, three-leaf clover, I don't know. I'm going to come up with some lame analogy, and it's not going to work, and then we're all going to be confused. And so I was like, ah, this kind of makes me feel weird. I believe it because it's there. It seems to be clearly in the scriptures, but I don't know how it works. But I have come to absolutely love the mystery of the Trinity. 
Like this is a, this is a huge and important and awesome thing. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I uh, went to a play, and it was called uh, Father of the Bride, and it's based not on the Steve Martin movie of uh, a couple decades ago, but uh, based on a book from the 1940s. And as you're watching this play, you're like, oh, I bet you this was written in the 1940s. Because there's just a lot of things about it that you're like, wow, this is like, okay, this is, this is different. And so it's about this, uh, the, the father. His name's Stanley and, uh, and his daughter. And his daughter's engaged to a young man named Buckley. Well, there's this scene about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the play where Buckley and the, the woman he's to marry, his fiancée, they get in this huge argument. And Buckley is completely and utterly confused. He has no idea. He's like, I said this, and then she said that, but I think she meant something else. And he's like, I, I can't compute how she says this, but I think she means... So he's talking to his father-in-law, Stanley. And Stanley, the father, he's older, he's wiser, he's, he's been happily married for many years, and he sits the young man down, and he begins to explain to this young man that sometimes a wife, or in this case a fiancé, might say one thing, but sort of mean another thing. Because women are complex and mysterious and difficult for men to understand. But, but, they're a treasure. This is the conversation. Now, I am listening to this, and I have my Ann Arbor ears on. And so I just start scanning the crowd to see what the reaction is going to be. Now, let me paint a picture of who the crowd was that day. Uh, the crowd was, I would guess, 99% couples on dates. Most of whom were significantly older than Charity and I. You're like, really? Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible, all right? <laughs> I mean, it was, like a, it was like more gray hair than I had. It was like, it was an older couples primarily. Now, when Stanley's telling Buckley that women are mysterious and hard to understand and all of these things, blah, 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 right? When he's saying that, do you think that the crowd all started fighting each other? That's not true. Oh, I always say exactly what I mean. Yes, you do. You are 100% little, It's easy to understand you. There's no mystery here. Do you think that's what was happening in that room? No. Why? Well, because we married folks know that what he was saying is true. It didn't trouble us in any way, shape, or form. I think like a man. My wife thinks like a woman. And we don't always speak the same language. I can't always understand her. She can't always understand me. That's just real. And she is just a human. Why does it bother us to think, God, you're so mysterious. I don't always understand how you think. I don't understand how this works. R really? If you could go, oh, I got God figured out. It's not God. Your God's too small if you can figure him out completely. It should not trouble us that the God of the universe thinks differently, is layered, complex, mysterious, and challenging. In fact, the, the reality of God being that way ought to make us go, it has to be true. Here, here's what C.S. Lewis said. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. If God is overly simple, then that's an invented God. But the God who's complex and layered and mysterious, that is the God of the Bible. And yes, his true nature is challenging to understand, 
But like the young man in the play, we shouldn't run away from that, but seek to grow in loving relationship. God is a triunity, three persons, one God. And the Holy Spirit is one of the members of the Trinity. In the Bible, he shows up like almost in the very first words. It's the Spirit, and he's hovering over the waters. And the Spirit is like creating and ordering. And, and as you look, the, the word here is ruach, and it's kind of a layered word in Hebrew. But the Spirit is this invisible, empowering presence of God that shows up in, in the Old Testament in certain places and on certain people. You get to the New Testament, and Jesus is being baptized, and the Spirit of God descends on him as a dove. And everywhere Jesus goes, it's like this invisible presence and power of God is with him. Like when he speaks, it's like, whoa, those aren't just the words of a man. Those are the words of God. And when he interacts with people, and when he loves people, when he heals people, his courage, his mercy, even Jesus' death produces life for all who believe. Well, when Jesus ascends in Acts 2, we see that this very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, the invisible creator, sustainer, powerful presence of God, doesn't just leave with Jesus at the ascension, but comes down and descends on the church. Now, I told you this story a couple years ago, so forgive me, but uh, I, a, a couple years back, I was working on something, probably writing a sermon, and because uh, that's all I do, and, um, and I could hear my children in the basement arguing, and I, I could tell it was the two older ones, and it was getting heated and probably not great, and the youngest came running up and like closed the door in the basement, I was like, whoo, you know, like got out of there. And I said, what's going on? Oh, they're fighting us. Okay. I said, tell them to come up here because I'm going to talk to them. So, so he goes, okay. So he goes back in the basement and I hear, boys, come upstairs. Dad wants you to come upstairs. They start fighting more, whatever. And then I hear him say, come upstairs in the name of dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then they stop fighting and they're, do, 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 do. And here I come up. And he goes, and I go, name of dad? What? And he goes, you have more power than I do. And, and, he, and he, he just left, just knowing that I was someplace in the house and aware of what was going on altered their behavior. My word and my name carried something, something of my presence and my power. The Holy Spirit is more than that. The Holy Spirit isn't just, oh, what if God up in heaven hears me? Oh, 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 you know, what if he becomes aware of what I'm... No, no, he is God's presence here, now. He's searching us, even now. His presence is here, his power is here, and it should shape us beyond mere behavior to make us new from the inside out. So when they're going, hey, but now what am I supposed to do? Like, if I'm supposed to live out this, this life of faith, this gospel life, how am I supposed to do that? The Apostle Paul's like, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who's going to equip and empower and provide your new life. That's the Spirit, part two. The Spirit's work. Back to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What, then, does the Holy Spirit do exactly? Well, the Holy Spirit is, in the words of Paul, the Spirit of life. What does the Holy Spirit do? He brings life. He is the life-giving Spirit. He, he is the one that wherever he moves, there's, there's peace and life and joy and love. his fruit is there. That is what his Spirit does. He's about new love and new life. What's interesting is that right now our culture is saying that, that the real story is that God is oppressive and mean and trying to squish our good time and that we're just these like misfit rebels who are just trying to live life. YOLO, right? There's even an animated series that's out right now. haven't watched it. And its origin story is about the very first couple who are in this garden. You'll never guess what their names are. Adam and Lilith. I, I don't know where that comes from, but, but she decides that he's too, like, domineering, so she runs away, and she meets somebody who actually sees the beauty in her, and the somebody that she meets that sees the beauty in her, his name is Lucifer. And together, they have this wonderful, whimsical marriage, and they try to give humanity a gift. It kind of goes awry, and, and, and heaven gets so angry. Heaven, all oppressive and mean and rule-giving, gets so angry that it like, condemns them to hell, and all they want to do is live. And here they are stuck in hell, and sometimes heaven sends angels down to like, kill the people. Now, it's an animated series. Who cares, really? But, but the story is one that I feel like is getting told in our culture all the time. That the real way to freedom and life is not in the Spirit of God. It's in this fierce independence and that the God of heaven is actually trying to squeeze the life out of us. I don't think that any of us, if a parent ran and grabbed their three-year-old out of the way of a car, would say, oh, don't try to crush their dreams. Don't steal their independence from them. That was so rude. You're a little bit rough when you grab them out of the way of the car. We would say that looks like love. So the God of the Bible, he sends his spirit, and sometimes there is a bit of like, Ugh. there is a bit of like conviction. There is challenge. There is change. There are some groans involved. It's not always pleasant, but he is the God of life. And there is one from the very, very, very beginning who has been trying to sow death has been trying to like create chaos and uncreate what God in his goodness has created. The evil one lies and manipulates and wounds and glories in death. Not long ago, I read of somebody who had been given a screening of the videos that were taken by the perpetrators of the attacks on the Jewish settlements in October 7. So this is like from the perpetrator's perspective. It's like their GoPros or whatever. And as you might imagine, the images of uh, cruelty and abuse and the violence against the Jewish men, women, and children were absolutely horrific. And as this person was talking about watching those videos, he said it, those were terrible and terrifying, but he said what was worse was seeing when the cameras turned on the perpetrators themselves and saw the glee and the delight that they had in doing those heinous things. And his response was, that is demonic. And that's exactly right. That's demonic. 
That is the work of the evil one, to, to glory in death and abuse and pain and hurt. The Spirit of God is not that. The Spirit of God is not the bad guy. He is the Lord of light and life and love. In 2 Corinthians we read, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In John 6, 63, we read, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What is the work of the Spirit? To bring life. To set free from sin and death. Through the Father sending the Son as a human being to be the perfect sacrifice, the Spirit raised Jesus to life and now is the invisible power and presence of God and he brings life to each of us as well. Verse 1, there is no condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? He takes people who are on death row and then he sets them free. And there's no longer condemnation. That doesn't mean I was freed once, but then I can go back to jail if I like to do the bad thing. No, no, I have been, set, I have been justified just as if I never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. It's by grace through faith. And the Spirit is the one who does it. And we are given eternal life immediately that carries us from this world to the next. So that even when our bodies in this world begin to break down and they start to die, and the evil one who's all about it is like, yes, this is awesome. This is victory because you're dying. The Spirit of God is stronger and better. And he's actually setting us up and renewing us and getting ready to restore us and give us life eternal. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the work of the spirit to rescue us through the work of Jesus and walk with us into life eternal. To empower and equip us for the days of faith that we have on this earth and for the great reward that is to come. As I was studying the uh, role of the Holy Spirit, I came across a New York Times article about two men named Robbie and Carlos, both of whom had spent some time in prison. And after they served their time in prison... One of their realizations was it's not easy to transition from the life of prison to the life out there. There's just like everything is new and different. And they're, they're like key fobs. Like we didn't have key fobs when I went to prison or smartphones. We didn't have that. And, and like menus where there's just like all, they're just like, it was like impossible to navigate. And so what these two guys decided was we are going to go when men are released from prison and we're going to meet them at the drop-off point and we're going to pick them up and we're going to help them transition into the new life. Because they're going to walk out and they're going to have like a tough guy exterior and whatever language, lingo that they had to develop and culture in prison. And they're going to carry that into our world and it's not going to serve them in this world. In fact, it's going to like put them in some bad situations if they still carry that. And so they decided they're going to pick up these prisoners and they're going to, first thing they're going to do is take them to a restaurant, let them order whatever they want. So that's what they did. Take them and let them eat whatever they want. And then they say, we're going to take you shopping now. So then they go to the store because these men don't have much. And they said the guys are almost overwhelmed to have all the options, even though they may have remembered that from before going to prison. 
They'd been in prison so long that just being in a, in a target or whatever is like, like disorienting. And so they say, we've actually come up with a system. Like, well, get, you're going to need deodorant, toothpaste, and all this stuff. And they start, like, they fill up the cart, like, partway and say, no, keep going. Keep, keep shopping. And then they take the guy after they kind of talk to him about all the changes that are going to happen, and they bring him to somebody else who's going to help them find a job and, and live in a halfway house or whatever, start to navigate their new lives. The message of our faith is that, spiritually speaking, we are living in death row. We are passing time, making some friends maybe, but we are ultimately headed to the grave. But Jesus, in his goodness and his grace, comes to rescue us, paying the penalty we deserve. And when we place our faith in him, he sends his spirit to pick us up at that point and to walk with us through life, eternal, to empower, to correct, to guide us. His work ensures that we never walk alone, and that we ultimately make it home. That's what the Spirit's work is. Part three, spirit people. So now what? What does it mean for us to be people of the Spirit? The Spirit, if it's God's invisible power and presence in our lives, what does that mean we're supposed to do? How do we walk in the Spirit? There's no condemnation, right? We, we just read that. There's no condemnation. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Here's what a lot of us mean when we say, oh, I'm just going to follow the Spirit's leading. We mean, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like, right? If someone says, oh, how's the Spirit leading you? I think to Chipotle, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think that's the Spirit. I, I mean, like, 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 generally when we say I'm following the Spirit, we say I'm following my whims. I'm following whatever idea popped into my head. I'm following my appetites. I'm following my, my flesh. no. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Are there like all these rules and lists that I have to follow? Like, does, does following the Spirit mean he goes, all right, here's, here's the list. Do all of these things and then you're, you're in me or not. Think, think about, just for a second, a healthy marriage. Healthy marriage. What does it mean to grow in your marriage? Does it mean that you operate based on a list? Some of you are like, that would be nice. Is that what that means? Like, I have never had a list that's like, wake up, roll over. Is she awake? Yes. Say, good morning. I love you. <laughs> Is she asleep? Then it, just get out of the room quietly. Pretend it didn't, right? Just go. Make coffee. Brush teeth. Kiss wife only after brushing teeth, right? Like, <laughs> you would say, You're, that's weird. That's insane. That's not, how, that's not how you grow in your marriage. In your marriage, you're not le led by a list. You're led by love. That as you fall in more deeply in love and you act more in love, that that is what leads you. Being led by the Spirit of God means being led by love. It means that the love of Christ has to so completely capture us that slowly but surely we become changed and conformed in his way. Now, the Apostle Paul does tell us two things that this looks like, this being led by love. One is, he said that spirit people set their minds. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. He doesn't say set your alarm, set your standards, set your discipline. He says set 
your mind. Become preoccupied. Let it capture your imagination. Consider, think deeply, mentally feast on Christ. Whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, think about that. Think about that. Set your mind there. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. I think what he's saying is, whatever captivates your mind during your free time is what you love the most. What captivates your mind during your free time? Is it uh, personal kingdom building? Financial planning? Doom scrolling? Hobby perfecting? Sports fanning? Some of these things are fine, but, but how does our time spent when we don't have anything else that we need to be doing, where do our minds go in those moments? A number of men at this church have done something crazy. They have made their smartphones really dumb. I, I, I've seen it. I've had a bunch of these guys go, hey, uh, yeah, sorry, I can't like, send you a GIF anymore because my phone doesn't do that or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, oh, yeah, I should. I like send them a link in the text, and they're like, I, I, I'm going to have to wait till I get home. I'm like, you're texting me on an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have Safari anymore. I'm like, why? Because what I found is that in every free moment, what my mind does is it goes to distraction. That's my religion. My religion is distraction, essentially. I've dumbed my phone down. I've found a whole bunch of ways to still let it distract me. But what they're doing, I think, is saying, I want to, in my free time, have space to think, and I want my mind set on the things that are above. He says, set your minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what it means to be the the people of the Spirit. You're led by love, and so you just become fascinated with who Jesus is. The second thing he says to do is in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The second thing that spirit people do is they mortify their sin. Mortify is kind of an old, old school word, but it means we put it to death. We don't have the time today to talk about all the ways to put our sin to death. But if we find something in us that is sinful, we are to kill it. Do you know what sin really likes? Secrecy. Darkness. It just likes to live kind of in the... It doesn't want to be shown to anybody. You don't want to, it doesn't want the light shined on it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together says, In confession... The breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. If we are going to mortify our sin, put to death the deeds of the body, then we must expose it to the light. We have to have minds so captivated by Jesus that he seems better even than our sin. That we start to believe that better is one day in his courts 
than a thousand elsewhere. And so we don't play games with our sin. We don't try to hang on to our sin. We, we, we don't like hold on to just a little bit of our sin. No, we expose it and we kill it. Our old dog um, got this life-threatening infection due to some sort of slivered thing in his neck. And in order to get rid of it, we had to take him to the vet and they had to shave his neck. He's a golden retriever. He had to shave all this fur hair off of his neck and then do a surgery to remove it. Now, can you imagine if, as the vet's explaining this to me, I said, listen, golden retrievers, glory is their coat. Can we do this without shaving? He would say, that's, we need to clean it from whatever else. I, I know. I understand that. Just don't shave it. Oh, and can you only, like, could I get a discount? Because I don't understand why this costs so much. Can I get a discount if you just remove, like, half the sliver? He would look at me and say, are you trying to kill your dog? And the answer, of course, is no. That was a great dog. My current dog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. He's not here. It's okay. <clears throat> but you can't leave any bit of it in there because then the infection just happens more. That's our sin. Shave it so that we can all see it and then get rid of it. Mortify it. Put it to death. Put it to, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means that you love Jesus so much that your mind is set and you're fixated on him and that you love him so much you're like, oh yeah, I know this is embarrassing to, 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 con, to, to confess this to my small group or my counselor or whatever. I know, but I just want more of Jesus. For those of us who've been saved, we might feel like, oh, now what? It's kind of disorienting. It's not primarily a what, it's a who. The Spirit of God is leading us toward life abundant. Let's pray. Father, would your Spirit lead us? Would your Spirit help us become more and more captivated by the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus? Would your Spirit convict us, help us to confess to the right people in the right way, but help us to put to death those deeds of the flesh so that we can become the people you've created us to be, people who are just bringing nothing but glory and honor to Jesus. And so, God, we, we thank you because it, it can feel overwhelming when we look at our lives and all the issues that we may have or the sin struggles we might be battling we thank you that your spirit is there to lead, to challenge, to convict, to grow, to seal, and to walk with us to eternity. God, we're so thankful, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.